Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Happy to be here. Skylight is, is one of my just all-time favorite bookstores. Um, and I always have this bad habit when I'm in the stores. I'm always like secretly shopping while I'm reading. Like, oh, I don't have that one yet. Um, and, you know, it's that thing, especially now. I mean, independent bookstores, we all know, are incredibly rare. But it's also the, the well-curated independent bookstore. So literally, as I walk in, I'm like, oh, you know, it's horrible. You'll see. Afterwards, I won't be signing books. I'll just be perusing the aisles. Excuse me. Excuse me. Um, I'm going to read you a little bit from May We Be Forgiven. Um, what I will tell you about it is, it's as you can see, it's a big, long novel. It's something like 203,000 words. It was supposed to be a short story. <laughs> I don't know what happened. Um, what I'm going to read to you is an edited version of from the beginning. I haven't figured out how to read further in because I keep thinking, well, then they won't know what's happening. Um, although there's some very funny stuff further in, and what I'm going to read now is not all that funny, so it's a little slightly, not misleading, but trust me, it gets funny. Um, okay. And then I'll answer any questions if anyone has them. Um, and Madonna is, in fact, playing tonight, just in case you're wondering where everyone else is. <laughs> although she's not going on until 10. That was a lousy excuse of her not to be here. But anyway. May we be forgiven. An incantation, a prayer, the hope that somehow I come out of this alive. Was there ever a time you thought, I'm doing this on purpose, I'm fucking up, and I don't know why? Do you want my recipe for disaster? The warning sign, last year, Thanksgiving at their house. 20 or 30 people at tables spreading from the dining room into the living room, stopping abruptly at the piano bench. He was at the head, picking turkey out of his teeth, talking about himself. I kept watching him as I went back and forth, carrying plates into the kitchen, the edges of my fingers dipping into unnameable goo, cranberry, sweet potato, cold pearl onion, gristle. With every trip back and forth from the dining room to the kitchen, I hated him more. Every sin of our childhood, beginning with his birth, came back. He entered the world 11 months after me, sickly at first, and was given far too much attention. And then, despite what I repeatedly tried to tell him about how horrible he was, he acted as though he believed he was a gift of the gods. They named him George. Come on in and sit down. <laughs> Excuse me while I seat this person. 
We have plenty of seats here in the front row. Madonna's not coming. I saved her a seat. I know, not till 10. What is this? Ridiculous. Multitasking. Okay. He was given far too much attention, like Madonna. And then, despite of what I repeatedly tried to tell him about how horrible he was, he acted as though he believed he was a gift to the gods. They named him George. Geo, he liked to be called. Like that was something cool, something scientific, mathematical, analytical. Geode, I called him, like a sedimentary rock. By the time we were 10 and 11, he was taller than me, broader, stronger. Are you sure he's not the butcher's boy? My father would ask jokingly, and no one laughed. I was bringing in heavy plates and platters, casseroles caked with the debris of dinner, and no one noticed that help was needed. Not George, not his two children, not his awful friends, who were in fact in his employ. Among them a weather girl and assorted spare anchormen and women who sat stiff back and hairsprayed like Ken and Barbie. And not my Chinese-American wife, Claire, who hated turkey and never failed to remind us that her family used to celebrate with roast duck and sticky rice. George's wife, Jane, had been at it all day, cooking, cleaning, serving, and now scraping bones and slop into a giant trash bin. Jane scoured the plates, piling dirty dishes one on top of the other and dropping the slimy silver into a sink of steamy water. Glancing at me, she brushed her hair away with the back of her hand and smiled. I went back for more. I looked at their children and imagined them dressed as pilgrims in black buckle shoes and doing pilgrim children chores, like carrying a bucket of milk like a human oxen. Nathaniel 12 and Ashley 11 sat like lumps at the table, hunched, or more like curled as if poured into their chairs, truly spineless, eyes focused only on small screens, the only thing in motion their thumbs, one texting friends no one had ever seen, the other killing digitized terrorists. In the background, two televisions competed loudly among themselves for no one's attention, one featuring football and the other the film Mighty Joe Young. You know, I'm a company man, heart and soul, George says. I'm the network's president of entertainment. I am ever aware, 24-7. There's a television in every room. The fact is George can't be alone, not even in the bathroom. The turkey platter was at the center of the table, and I reached over my wife's shoulder and lifted. It was heavy and wobbled, and I willed myself to stay strong and was able to carry out the mission while balancing a casserole of Brussels sprouts and bacon in the crook of my other arm. The turkey and heirloom bird, whatever that means, had been rubbed, relaxed, and herbed into submission, and to thinking it wasn't so bad to be decapitated and stuffed up the ass with breadcrumbs and cranberries. <laughs> the bird had been raised with a goal in mind, an actual date when his number would come up. I stood in their kitchen picking at the carcass while Jane did the dishes, bright blue gloves on, up to her elbows and suds. My fingers were deep in the bird, the hollow body still warm, the best bits of stuffing packed in. I dug with my fingers and brought stuffing to my lips. Jane looked at me, my mouth moist, my fingers curled into what would have been the turkey's G-spot if they had such things. <laughs> she lifted her hands out of the water and came towards me to plant one on me. Not friendly. The kiss was serious, full of desire. It was terrifying and unexpected. She did it, then snapped off her gloves and walked out of the room. I was holding the counter, gripping it with greasy fingers, hard. Dessert was served. Jane asked if anyone wanted coffee and went back into the kitchen. I followed her like a dog wanting more. She ignored me. Are you ignoring me? I asked. She said nothing and then handed me the coffee. Could you let me have a little pleasure, a little something that's just for myself? She paused. Cream and sugar? 
From Thanksgiving through Christmas and on into the new year, all I thought of was George fucking Jane, George on top of her, or for special occasion, George on the bottom, and once, fantastically, George having her from the back, his eyes fixed on a wall-mounted television, the ticker tape of news trickling across the bottom of the screen. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I was convinced that despite his charms, his excess of professional achievement, George wasn't very good in bed, and that all he learned about sex he learned from pages of a magazine read furtively while shitting. I thought of my brother fucking his wife constantly. It begins again. It's almost nine on an evening towards the end of February when Jane calls. Claire is still at the office. She's always at the office. Another man would think his wife was having an affair. I just think Claire is smart. I need your help, Jane says. Don't worry, I say, before I even know what the worry is. He's at the police station. There's some kind of a problem. I glance at the New York skyline. Did he do something wrong? Apparently, she says. They want me to come and get him. Can you? Can you do it? Can you pick your brother up? Don't worry, I say, repeating myself. A fight. On the way to the police station, that's what I'm thinking. George has it in him, a kind of atomic reactivity that stays under the surface until something triggers him and he erupts, throwing over a table, smashing his fist through a wall. More than once, I've been the recipient of his frustrations, a baseball hurled at my back, striking me at kidney level. A shove through a full-length pane of glass as George blocks me from getting the last of the brownies. 33 minutes later, I park outside a small suburban police station, a white cake box circa 1970. I'm the brother of the man you called his wife about. I'm here on behalf of George Silver. You're the brother? Yes. We called his wife. She's coming. She called me. I'm here to pick him up. We wanted to take him to the hospital, but he wouldn't go. He kept repeating, he's a dangerous man, and we should take him downtown and lock him up. Personally, I think the man needs a doctor. You don't walk away from something like that unscathed. So we got into a fight, I ask. Car accident, bad one. Doesn't appear he was under the influence. He passed a breath test and consented to urine, but he really should see a doctor. Was it his fault? He ran a red light, plowed into a minivan. Husband was killed on impact. The wife was alive at the scene. Rescue crews used the jaws of life to free her. Upon release, she expired. The boy's in fair condition. He'll survive, the younger cop says. Your brother's in the back. I'll get him. Is he being charged with the crime? Not at the moment. There'll be a full investigation. The officers noted he appeared disoriented. Take him home. Get him a doctor, a lawyer. These things can get ugly. George comes out disheveled. Why are you here, he asks. Jane called. Besides, you had the car. She could have taken a taxi. It's late, I say. I lead George through the small parking lot and into the night, feeling compelled to take his arm, to guide him by his elbow, not sure if I'm preventing him from escaping or just steadying him. Either way, George doesn't pull away. He lets himself be led. Where's Jane, he asks. At the house. Does she know? I shake my head no. It was awful, he says. There was a light. Did you see the light? I think I may have seen it, but it was like it didn't make sense. Like it didn't apply to you? Like I didn't know. He gets into the car. Where's Jane, he asks again. At the house, I repeat. Buckle your belt. Pulling into the driveway, the headlights cut through the house and catch Jane in the kitchen holding a pot of coffee. Are you all right, she asks when we're inside. How could I be, George says. He empties his pockets under the kitchen counter. He takes off his shoes, his socks, his pants, his boxers, his shirt, his undershirt, and stuffs all of it into the kitchen trash can. Would you like some coffee, 
Jane asks. Naked, Jane, George stands with his head tilted as if he's hearing something. Coffee? She asks again, gesturing with the pot. He doesn't answer. He walks from the kitchen through the dining room and into the living room and sits in the dark, naked, in a chair. Did he get into a fight? Jane asks. Car accident. You better call your insurance company or your lawyer. Do you have a lawyer? George, do we have a lawyer? Do I need one? He asks. If I do, call Rutkowski. Something's wrong with him, Jane says. He killed people. There's a pause. She pours George a cup of coffee and brings it into the living room along with a dish towel that she drapes over his genitals like putting a napkin in someone's lap. The phone rings. Don't answer it, George says. Hello, Jane says. I'm sorry, he's not home right now. May I take a message? Yes, I hear you. Perfectly clear. She hangs up. Do you want a drink? She asks no one in particular and then pours one for herself. Who was it? I ask. Friend of the family, she says, and clearly she means the family that was killed. For a long time, George sits in the chair, the dish towel shielding his privates, the cup of coffee daintily on his lap. Beneath him, a puddle forms. George, Jane implores when she hears the sound like water dripping. You're having an accident. Tessie, the old dog, gets up from her bed, comes over and sniffs it. Jane hurries into the kitchen and comes back with a wad of paper towels. It'll eat the finish right off the floor, she says. <laughs> Through it all, George looks blank, like the empty husk left by a reptile who shed his skin. Jane takes the coffee cup from George and hands it to me. She takes the wet kitchen towel from his lap, helps him to stand, and then wipes the back of his legs and his ass with paper towels. Let me help you upstairs. I watch as they climb the steps. I see my brother's body slack, his stomach sagging slightly, the bones of his hips, his pelvis, his flat ass, all so white they appear to glow in the dark. As they climb, I see below his ass and tucked between his legs, his low purplish sack swaying like an old lion. I sit on their couch. Where is my wife? Isn't Claire curious to know what happened? Doesn't she wonder why I'm not home? The room smells like urine. There are wet paper towels on the floor. Jane doesn't come back to clean up the pee. I do it and sit on the sofa. I'm staring through the dark at an old wooden tribal mask. I'm staring at this unfamiliar face that Nate brought back from a school trip to South Africa. And the mask seems to be staring back, as though inhabited, wanting to say something. I hate this living room. I hate this house. I want to go home. I text Claire and explain what happened, and she writes back, I took advantage of your being gone and I'm still at the office. It sounds like you should stay the night. Dutifully, I sleep on the sofa with a small, <coughs> excuse me, blanket covering my shoulders. Tessie, the dog, joins me, warming my feet. In the morning, there are hurried phone calls and hushed conversations and a copy of the accident report crawls out of the fax machine. Am I going death or what the fuck is going on around here? George wants to know. George, Jane says clearly, we have to go to the hospital. Pack your bag. And he does. I drive them. He sits next to me wearing well-worn pants and a shirt he's had for years. He's unevenly shaved. I drive self-consciously, worried his complacent mood might shift, that he might flash back, erupt, and try to grab the wheel. The seatbelts are good. They discourage sudden movements. Simple Simon met a pieman going to the fair. Said Simple Simon to the pieman, let me taste your wear. George intones. Simple Simon went a-fishing for to catch a whale. All the water he has got was in his mother's pail. Watch out, he says to me, or you'll get what you ask for. Mm -hmm.
Do you know why you're here? A doctor asks him. Bad aim, George says. Any history of mental or neurological problems? No. Why don't you leave him with us for now and we'll order some tests, the doctor says, and then we can talk further. Again, I stay the night at Jane and George's house. It's a long book. I'm skipping forward here. It's 203,000 words, okay? <laughs> Give me a break. You can read it for yourself. It's, it's much better even when you read it because there's all these things that I won't say out loud. Coming up. <laughs> it's funny how quickly something becomes a routine, a way of doing business. I stay with Jane and it's as though we're playing house. I take out the trash, I lock the door, she makes a snack and asks if I'll come upstairs. We watch television and read. I read whatever it was that George had been reading. His magazines and newspapers, the big history of Thomas Jefferson on his side of his bed. The accident happens and then it happens. It doesn't happen the night of the accident or the night we all visit. It happens the night after that. The night after Claire tells me not to leave Jane alone. The night after Claire leaves for China. Claire goes on her trip, George goes downhill, and then it happens. It's the thing that was never supposed to happen. The evening visit to the hospital goes badly. For reasons that are not entirely clear, George is locked into a padded room, his arms bound to his body. He looks miserable. Jane asks to go in and see him, and the nurse cautions her against it, but she insists. Jane goes to George and calls his name. He looks at her. She sweeps his hair out of his face and wipes his furrowed brow, and he turns on her, pins her with his body, and bites her again and again, her face, her neck, her hands, breaking the skin in several places. The aides rush in and pull George off her, and she's taken downstairs and treated in the emergency room. Her wounds are cleaned and dressed, and she's given some kind of a shot, like a rabies vaccination. We go back to the house. Jane heats 100-calorie brownies in the microwave, and I scoop non-fat ice cream onto them, and she sprays them with zero-calorie whipped cream, and I cheer them further with chocolate sprinkles. We snack in silence. I change out of my clothes, the same clothes I've been wearing for days, and put on a pair of his pajamas. I hug her. I want to be comforting. I'm in his pajamas. I don't think anything will happen. I apologize, I say, without knowing what I'm saying. And then she is against me. She puts her hands on the sides of her skirt and slides it down. There was a time I almost told Claire about Thanksgiving. In fact, I tried to tell her one night when I was feeling close to her. As I started to tell the story, Claire sat straight up and pulled the sheet tight against her body, and I backed away from what I was about to say. I changed it. I left out the kiss and just mentioned something about Jane brushing against me. You're in her way, Claire said. I didn't mention that I felt the head of my cock pressing against my sister-in-law's hips. Only you would think she was making a pass, Claire said, disgusted. Only me, I repeated. Only me. Jane is on me, and I'm thinking, this is not really happening, is it? She strokes me, looking me in the eye, and there's no way to say no. And I skip a bunch. <laughs> Make it up for yourself. Or read the book. Drenched in her scent, but too shaken to shower or fall asleep in their bed, I wait until she's asleep and then go downstairs to the kitchen and wash myself with dish soap. I'm in my brother's kitchen at three in the morning, soaping my cock at his sink, drying myself with a towel that says, home sweet home. It happens again in the morning when she finds me on the sofa, and then in the afternoon after we visit George. What's the story with your hand, George asked Jane, noticing her bandages. He's back in his room with no memory of the night before. Jane starts to cry. You look like hell, he says. Get some rest. It's been a difficult time, I say. 
That evening, we open a bottle of wine and do it again, more slowly, deliberately. The hospital lets him out, or more likely, he just decides to leave. Inexplicably, Jane, George is able to walk out unnoticed in the middle of the night. He comes home in a taxi using money he's found wrinkled at the bottom of his pocket. He can't find his keys, so he rings the bell and the dog barks. Maybe I heard that part, the dog barking. Or maybe he didn't ring the bell and maybe the dog didn't bark. Maybe George took the spare key from under the mat or from inside the fake rock in the garden by the door. And like an intruder, he came silently into his own house. Maybe he came upstairs thinking he'd crawl into his bed, but his spot was taken. I don't know how long he stood there. I don't know how long he waited before he lifted the lamp from her side of the bed and smashed it onto her head. That's when I woke up. She's screaming. The one blow isn't enough. She tries to get up. The lamp isn't even broken. George looks at me and then picks the lamp up again and swings it at her. The porcelain vase that is the base explodes against her head. By then I'm out of bed. He tosses aside what remained of the lamp, blood streaming down his fingers, picks up the phone and throws it to me. Call it in, he says. I stand facing him wearing his pajamas. We are the same like mimes. We have the same gestures, the same faces, the family chin. I'm staring at him not knowing how this is going to work out. An awful gurgling sound prompts me to dial the phone. Accidentally, I drop the phone. I bend to pick it up and my brother's foot catches me under the chin, kicking me hard. My head snaps back. I'm down as he leaves the room. I see his hospital gown under his clothes hanging out like some kind of tail. I hear George's heavy footfall as he goes down the stairs and Jane is making an alarming noise. I reach for the phone. I dial O, thinking it's like a hotel, like I expect someone to answer. There's a long recording, like a spoken word essay, about what the O button can do for you. And I realize it will be forever before a real person comes on. I hang up, and after several shaky attempts, I dial 911. A woman has been beaten, I say. Hurry, and give them the address. I pull myself to standing and go and get a washcloth in the bathroom as though that will help, as though I can wipe the blood away. I can't even find the spot. It takes forever. The fire trucks come first. The house shakes as it pulls up, and I leave Jane and go to the window. They come across the grass in full fire gear, hats and coats, immune to the pre-dawn spray of the irrigation system. I don't know if George opens the door, if they come in of their own accord. Upstairs, I shout. Quickly, they are upon her. One stands apart, talking as if narrating into his radio. A middle-aged woman, open head injury, bring a longboard, full air, medic bag, request paramedic and police. Who was this woman? The narrator asks. Jane, my brother's wife. Relevant medical information, allergies, underlying conditions. Does Jane have any medical conditions? I shout downstairs. A lamp hit her on the head, my brother says. The paramedics slip an under orange board under Jane and tape her to it with what looks like duct tape. They wrap her head in gauze and she looks like a money, mummy, a battle casualty, or maybe a shriner en route to a convention. She makes a noise, a low guttural growl, as five of them lift her and carry her out, leaving a trail of sterile debris and heavy footprints. They are out the kitchen door and into the back of the ambulance faster than you might think. George is in the kitchen, drinking a cup of coffee. There's blood on his hands and flecks of something on his face, pieces of lamp, shards. No parking on the grass, he says to the first police officer who arrives. Inform your troops. Which one of you is Mr. Silver, the cop asks. I assume he's a detective because he's not wearing a uniform. We both raise our hands simultaneously. I am. We're brothers, I say. So who did what to whom? He's got his notebook out. George sips his coffee. 
I say nothing. And that's just the beginning. The 203,000 words. <laughs> Does anyone have any questions? Any pop quiz sort of, sort of things? Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, oh, so, oh, no, go ahead. When you say it started as a short story, how long ago was that? And when did you realize, oh, this is much bigger than that? Well, what year is it now? <laughs> um, Zadie Smith asked me... Um, a long time ago, I think it's like seven years ago, if I would write a piece for an anthology she was doing called The Book of Other People for Dave Eggers' 826 thing. And I said, sure. And she said, it should be about character. And I thought, okay. And I'd been thinking a lot about brothers, and I'd sort of worked a little bit on, on brothers in the last novel. And then I wrote a short story for the painter Eric Fischel called Brother on Sunday. That's these two angry brothers. And I thought, well, two angry brothers is a great way into character. So I started typing. And then the deadline came and went. I'm like, Zadie, I don't have it. Um, and then it ca I kept typing. And then there was like, Granta was having its 100th issue or something. I'm like, do you have something for us? And I was like, sort of. And I gave them what I had, which was really sort of just after this moment. Uh, and they printed it. <laughs> they printed it. And, but then I was, secret I was still typing. And I kept thinking, I was, what are you doing? Like, would you stop? And I'm like, no. And I sort of wouldn't admit that it was maybe going to be a novel. And then just years kept passing. And I kept thinking, why is this taking so long? I really didn't even realize how long it was. And then finally, when I turned it in, the editor's like, are there any chapters? And it's just, it's all like, it's a very accelerated book. And there, there are no, I mean, I had to put little breaks in, just in case someone wanted to get a breath or pee or, you know, whatever. Um, yeah, so I didn't, I was not intending for that to happen. Yeah. Know where it was going? Did you start out with a plan? Or no, <laughs> no. And I think the problem is, honestly, if you hit someone on the head with a lamp on like page twenty, you know, you're really asking a lot because you have to like sort of raise the stakes of what's going to happen. That's that's like a thing that you end a book with. You don't start there. And I had this happen once before with Music for Torching, where the couple burned down their house in the beginning, and again, that was supposed to be the ending. And I had the same thing. I kept thinking, and this isn't really like as though I'm I'm writing the rest. I'm like, this isn't really going to be a novel, is it? And I wouldn't like talk to myself. I was like in a fight with myself. Um, I was like, I'm not telling you what I'm doing. I was like, that's just great. You know, I work for you. Um, it's horrible. I go in the bathroom. You're fired. Don't come back tomorrow. I'm like, you know, can I get my stuff? I mean, you know, it's horrible. I don't, I don't want to go there. But anyway, um, so no, I didn't really know I was going. And the thing that's sort of interesting, it was hard in the beginning writing this. And I kept thinking, why is this so difficult? And I realized that part of what I was writing about this character, Harry, who's the main guy, who in a way doesn't really know himself. So it's very difficult. You start writing a novel about someone who doesn't know themselves very well, and it's sort of excruciating. And then it was interesting, because as the book goes on, he begins to know more. He sort of unpacks himself. And I keep describing it sort of like the book is maybe a midlife coming-of-age story. Um, and so that was interesting and surprising. And then there's a part where I thought, you know, this could go any number of ways. And I, I, I really thought it could, it could equally still have a bad end. And I thought a lot about... I'm interested in how to write optimistically at a time and place in history that's not inherently optimistic. Um, and even though this, obviously the beginning doesn't sound very optimistic, um, it evolves. And I think that was, that was actually interesting for me to try to think about what, what has to happen to this person and what, what kind of transformation has to happen within himself to kind of work through the story. So it was, it, but I didn't really know, no. I don't always, I mean, it's a long, it takes years. You don't, you know, if you knew, what would be the fun of it? 
it's an adventure. Was this the only thing you were writing? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I did a few other little things, but it's it's you know it's, I mean, it's hard work. I know. Books, so. No, no, there were no other books. No, this was I, the the. Uh, this book will save your life, and then the memoir came out, and then somewhere in the beginning, while the memoir was being published, I started writing this. But no, there were no other books. Oh no, um, you know, a few short stories because I, I mean, I'll write some articles and I'll do some other things. But I, I mean, the, the truth is, like, if I don't get writer's block, I just get like, if I get stuck, I go write something else. I'm like an air traffic controller. Oh, I'll bring that story in now. Um, I can't. I kind of can't bear not to be working because then I'd have to like live in reality, and that would be uncomfortable. Talk to people. <laughs> Go out of the house. Little technical problems that I'm not so good at. So no, I really. This was mostly it. But it's you know, it's. I mean, well, Meredith here read it already. It's really. It's a dense book. Um, so you know. Yeah. Should have taken less time? Should I be worried now? I'm slow. <laughs> hey, I'm home. She's one of those slow writers. Oh, well, it's artisanal. No, it's it seems like you have novels. Yeah. Just, well, they need to be like that 60, 70,000 word you know, novel. Yeah. Then, did your editor or agent go, <gasps> No, and the funniest thing was I turned it in and it was really long. I'd never written a book this long. And the guy actually made me add more. And I thought, really? <laughs> like, that's just, I mean, not only is that not right. And so I, I actually did some cutting. And, there, and it could be cut. I mean, it's funny to say it could be cut more. But I think one of the things, too, I was, I was really thinking about writing. I wanted to write a big American novel, um, and I wanted to really, t you know, write a novel that's both about sort of family and domestic life, which is traditionally a smaller American novel, but also about kind of big ideas in American culture. There's a big whole thing where Harry is actually a Nixon scholar who loses his job because we're not so interested in the past anymore. History is more future forward, which I think is a interesting idea. Um, and it worries me that that might actually be true, that we're not looking backward and seeing where we came from anymore. Um, so there's a lot about that. And then weirdly, there's a lot about Nixon in here that's very fact-based. And at a certain point, Harry, through a woman he meets on the internet, is introduced to Julie Nixon Eisenhower, who hires him to edit Nixon's unknown novels and short stories, which little bits of appear in here. And then there was a horrible moment where I kept thinking, oh god, I'm going to write a whole collection of Nixon short stories. And how do you publish those? A.M. Holmes as Nixon. You know, I don't know. Um, and I find Nixon kind of fascinating, both for sort of moral and social reasons, but also, you know, Nixon opened the relationship to China. And if you look now at our relationship to China, China owns more U.S. debt than any other country. And also, like, our I've, everything we do is, like, related to China. So there's a heavy, there's a heavy Chinese influence in this book, literally, which you'll see. Um, so it's all these extra threads that take, you know, take time. <laughs> Hi Siri. <laughs> she follows me everywhere. I'm stalked. Uh, does anyone else have a question? Really? Because I have to ask you guys questions then. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> uh, what, what's your writer day like? like My writer day? Uh, I get up 3 a.m. <laughs> Meditate. No, I wish. Um, <laughs> meditate in silence for four hours. Um, I have a kid, so I get up, you know, when the kid comes and goes, Hi, Mom. <laughs> like six in the morning. And I used to go to work early in the morning. I like to write in the morning before anything else happens, but that doesn't happen anymore because there's homework and breakfast and the dog and the hamster and there were the frogs and hours pass. And I, get, I, I go to work at about nine in the morning and I, I spend most of the day sitting there suffering. Um, and then I sort of, I try, usually I eat lunch at my desk. I'm, I, you know, I, I'm a creature of habit. I'm actually not, I don't feel good if I'm not writing. Um, so I just 
right like a dog all day um, and then you know I, the afternoon I, I mean I'm playing a lot of catch-up I'm very involved with things like Penn the Penn American Center and all that stuff so I do a lot of that in the afternoon and artist colony stuff and you know but I, I, I work all the time I'm pretty you know it's funny I've been doing this for so long I've been writing since I was 19 so the good news and bad news is it really is a job and I really also work thank God for my imagination because the truth is I couldn't if I wrote only from real life I would have stopped a long time ago would have run out um, so I have a lot of fun I mean it's like time travel for me honestly and I, when I finish I often I'm the weird woman in Washington Square Park they would go why is she wearing a winter coat because I have no idea what season it is and I'm like in my book it's like one season I get dressed and I go I'm like it's hot it's hot for December um, I just have no I don't know what's happening and then I, I come out and I'm like oh right you know people I always have this idea that there's like a fermato while I'm like you know there's this incredible pause where everyone else is just like this while I'm writing and I'll come out my friends will be like um, and it's not true you have to go find them again remind them that you know them hi we met da, 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 you know whatever but it's okay I have the dog it's good <laughs> Yeah. Are you already writing another book? Um, you know, I should be, and I'm very upset, actually, that I'm not writing another book right now. I've been doing this weird, weird, I shouldn't say that, the Swiss philosopher, Alain de Baton, has asked me to write a book about a large-scale institution. I think this must be a ruse to just derail me entirely. Um, but somehow I said, yes, yeah, so I've been spending time in New York Hospital watching brain surgery. Um, and I'm the, now the weird person in the operating room in scrubs. And when, they, when the doctor asks the nurse for something and she doesn't know where it is, I'm like, it's right there. Because <laughs> I now know like all these weird things. I know the name for these. You know how they always talk about things getting left in you? Well, there's these things now. They're called patties. And they put it into like absorb bleeding um, and it's like a piece of dental floss with a number on it and they put all the patties in you and they suck up all the different stuff and then in the end of the surgery they count them all and they wrap them back around the card there's all kinds of weird stuff you don't want to know about and there's a machine in the upper room called the bear hugger and the bear hugger they realize that when they put you to sleep you have no ability to control your body temperature and one of the bad effects from surgery seemed to be that people had lost regulation of their body temperature so now they basically after they put you to sleep which by the way you're asleep for like a half an hour while people are just eating lunch over you. Um, it's amazing to me, like all that doesn't happen while you're completely knocked out. And everyone's like, yeah, well, you know, so Saturday I went to whatever, and you know, and you're just like, you know, whatever. It's horrible, and your arm is just, you know, it's whatever. Um, and the bear hugger is this weird, like, inflatable, like, air mattress that they put over you that keeps you warm while you're just out. And then there's weird things with a neurosurgeon goes like, his phone rings. He's like, can I call you back? I'm in a head. Um, it's just, I love it. I truly, truly love it. But I'm trying to figure out how to make that into, like, a book about our relationship to hospitals, um, which just seems incredibly flawed. And I find myself in the ER saying to people, like, do you think there's a healthcare crisis? You know, it's like something's, like, coming out of the person's head. <laughs> you know, it's, anyway, and they have to, the funny thing is just they have to sign a HIPAA form before I can even ask them that question, which is part of the problem. So I can only ask the people who want to talk about what's happening. And then there's like the little ER doc who's about this big. He goes, I walk really fast. I'm kind of hypomanic. I think that really helps me in my job. <laughs> like, okay. And literally the guy just like takes off running. And I'm like, oh, wait, like, wait. you know, wait for me. No, it's, I'm not making any of it up. It's totally nonfiction. No, it's totally nonfiction. Which is why they all have to sign these forms. And I have to say like, how do you feel about your brain tumor? <laughs> it's like, 
how are you today, Mr. you know, whatever, and say, horrible. And then there's really sort of funny ones, because uh, there's a guy who, um, an actor actually, which people here can probably relate to, who he, he came back for a checkup, he had an aneurysm, which was like a bleed in his brain, and I was talking uh, while he was having his angiogram, where they were just updating his brain. Um, I said to his partner, this, this woman, I said, well, you know, so how did it happen? And basically, it turned out they were having sex, and he made this horrible noise that she realized was not a good noise. <laughs> Um, and then he like fell over. <laughs> he fell off of her or something. It was just anyway. And then she started doing CPR on him, but it turned out he didn't really need CPR. Um, and she broke his ribs. So really, it was good. It was really good. So I got that story. Um, it's inter It's really interesting. I mean, I secretly I do. I love it. But it's you know, it's not what I you'd think I'd be doing with my time. I know. Um, and then I had these like interesting, really kind of interesting like conversations with them about like end of life care, but for infants, and which was like just heartbreaking but fascinating. So it's all it's been good, ish. It's not a funny book though. I like this one. Anyway, anyone else have a question? Yes. From the brother's point of view, had I like writing from the brother's point of view? Well, what do you mean? I don't know, it just seemed, you know, the, the, truth, the truth is, like I would lie to you. Um, <laughs> that's all I do is lie all day, that's all what this is. Um, I, th I think of this, what is the story I'm trying to tell and who am I talking about? You know, who are the people? And then I really try to sort of write what's accurate for that character. Um, and that's one of the best things, honestly, for me about writing fiction, because it's, it's truly an act of the imagination. So I think about, where is this guy? Where did he come from? What are, what are sort of the hopes and dreams, the frustrations? You know, what, why is he, as in a way, stuck as he is? And why does he hate this brother? Um, and then what that relationship is. So it's, it's enormous. I mean, it's funny to say it's, it's both challenging, but it's a lot of fun to crawl inside somebody else. Um, and kind of really try to inhabit their experience, whatever that might be. And sometimes it's kind of scary, but you know, you think, oh, here we go. Um, you know, I like it. I mean, well, clearly I like it, but yeah. So it was fun. I mean, it was fine. And I, you know, I've written lots of male characters, uh, you know, most notably the jailed pedophile murderer, and that was a little upsetting. <laughs> Seriously, the end of Alice. And it was, I really, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to tell that story. The seasons just changed in the store. It was amazing. Um, I knew fall would come to Los Angeles. But the, with the jail part of file murder, I did a ton of research. Then at a certain point, I realized I wasn't writing a nonfiction book. I was really trying to figure out who this character was. And to me, one of the highest compliments about that book is psychiatrists teaching other psychiatrists use it to talk about what is that mind? What is the pedophilic mind? Because the it's so hard to teach and so hard to document and it's really a very difficult thing to treat on a mental health level. Um, so that said to me, wow, I really did a good job and I got this guy right in some way. Um, on the other hand, it's a very scary thing to think, oh great, I just got that right. Like, I needed to know that. Um, so it's, in you know, it's interesting. I mean, I, every book I write, I learn an enormous amount, which is good. Did you have a question? Yeah. 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 Do I have brothers? I do, you know, I'm adopted, so I have this weird thing of I'm an only child and I have siblings, yes. We don't necessarily get along. <laughs> over the line? No, I have my brother, no, no way. My brother couldn't catch a ball if you threw it directly at him. Um, no, I, no, no. But I'd like to, I always wanted like a real brother. <laughs> yeah, anyone else have a question? 
Well, sure. I mean, yes. You know, but I didn't, it's funny, I didn't want to write a stereotypical pedophile, <laughs> just any pedophile. Um, you know, the thing that was, in all seriousness, really interesting about that book is um, it's a book that was banned in a lot of Europe. Um, and people kept saying, well, how can you write this? And how can you sort of make this up? And why would you do this? And, and they always are talking about me. I'm such a dangerous and transgressive novelist. And my answer is, have you read the newspaper today? Like, I'm not making this stuff up. And the reason I really wanted to write about it, and the reason it's so upsetting, I think, to people, is it's about prompting a conversation. And the idea, and the pedophile in the book says, if I'm in jail, why is this still happening? Which means that we as a society are not dealing with it very well. And I think even the whole Jerry Sandusky thing, I mean, this, you know, End of Alice came out 10 years ago. We stink at dealing with it, and it's not just the United States, it's, it's, an, it's internationally. It's, it's a social issue that we've never been good at protecting children. Um, and I think it's a, you know, it's a real conversation that needs to be had, and it's not like a one-night conversation. It's a, it's a big thing. Um, but it's interesting to me that I, by, by talking about it, I'm the one who's labeled you know, transgressive and like over the edge and whatever. And I think it's, it's out there every single day. Um, so I, I think you know, it's funny. Like the writer's job, if the writer has an official job, is to write things that provoke us to think about ourselves and the world we live in and to kind of look at how accountable or not we're being. Um, and, you know, in this book, the good news is I do that in a way that I think is also very funny and entertaining, but that's, you know, incredibly serious. And in the end of Alice, it was very serious and I hope sort of artfully done. And, and it's a scary book because it's a book that people read and then sometimes they sort of find themselves turned on by it and then they also want to throw it across the room. And I think, well, exactly. That's why we don't deal with it because on the one hand, it's a little bit alluring and on the other hand, we're disgusted by it. So we just freeze up and don't, you know, reconcile it in some way. I'll be preaching on Saturday at the... <laughs> Stop it. I t in the middle of this book, and this is like the running joke, I took stand-up comedy class, and I somehow think it's ruined my book tour. Because every time I'm reading in the middle of it, I start like telling jokes, and I just think, you cannot do that. And there I go again. You've always been funny, though. I know, but it's not a good thing to just... Yes, thank you. I've always been funny, like, ha-ha, or like... No, um, anyway, anyone else have a question? Yes. Are you reading anything right now? Simultaneous. Right how I'm standing, I'm reading. Next to your bed. Yes, of course there's of course there's a stack of stuff. Um, yeah. Encyclopedias and no, I'm I'm reading there's a great book that just came out called I think it's called The News from Spain, or is it the Letter from Spain? Joan Wickersham. She's a really great writer. It's a book of short stories, incredibly sort of fine and wonderful. She wrote a great book called The Suicide Index about her father who killed himself, you know, another light subject. Um, I really like that book a lot. There's a short story writer named Brad Watson, who I think is an incredible short story writer who's not very well known. Um, Tons of things, you know, I'm always reading, but I also have like, I read like science a lot, I love science. I like economics. You know, I'm always thinking about the economics of fiction, why do characters live where they live, how do they support themselves. These, these folks have some money, it's annoying. Um, I know, you know, I love, I just, I just, I mean, I read like cereal boxes, niacin, I love niacin. <laughs> Extra in this, you know, <laughs> I do. Do you never just stare at the back of the cereal box for like, you catch yourself like staring at it for like an hour? You're like, wow, lucky charms. Yeah. Why did you take a stand-up class? 
Why did I? Because I was so depressed. No, I, you know, I was writing this book, and I really thought I needed to get out of the house a little bit because I really do get stuck in there. And I thought I wanted to do something that was going to be really hard for me to do. Um, and that seemed to me like aiming, aiming right out there. And I took it at UCB, Upright Citizens Brigade. And the first thing on the form, which I knew was a problem, was it said, if you're under 18, you need a parent's permission. <laughs> I hadn't seen that in a very long time. And I get there, and it's in the afternoon, and most of the people are quite young. Um, I played the grandmother in the class. And uh, they do this thing, they start off, they're like, everyone, you know, tell us your pet peeve. Tell us something that's, and so, you know, somebody's like, I don't like it when my brother turns off the light in our room. <laughs> and so I, then they get to me and they go, you know, what's your pet peeve? And I said, I don't like when I'm in a wheelchair in an airport and people ignore me. And the teacher goes, no, no, it's got to be something that's real. And I go, I don't like it when I'm in a wheelchair in an airport. And, I, and they all just look at me, you know, and the, whatever. And then there were these times when they would say to me, you're trying too hard. I'm thinking, no, I'm not trying at all. You don't realize. Like, this is just the way it is. Um, it was very difficult. But I liked it. I mean, I liked, you know, like, I liked trying to think about how you would do that. I don't necessarily agree with, they have a sort of a methodology. Like you have to, instead of saying like, no, you're wrong to the person who like says something to you, you have to say, I think you're right and I think you're a moron. Or you know, you have to like add, there's always a, the and, which was, you know. So it becomes sort of a running joke for me personally. Anyway, um, I know it didn't, it was, I, I'm, I'm gonna work on that more. I'm gonna, st I'm gonna study harder. <laughs> to be funnier. No, I'm not. I'm just, anyway. Uh, anyone else have one last question? No last question? I knew there was one. Yes. Well, what about law enforcement with the pedophiles? Have the church sent the priest over to Ireland and not the pedophiles are in Ireland and they're molesting children in Ireland? Well, the th they were always molesting children everywhere, so it's not, you know. Of course. No, they, I mean, the church guys who just get moved to like another church or another place. Yeah, I mean. All over the country. I think it's really true. I mean, I think there really is a problem. Um, and I think, you know, one of the difficult things is it is, a, it is a power struggle because the thing is you're talking about children who obviously admire adults and especially in the church, they're, they're these, you know, figures of authority. Um, you know, you could get into a whole big thing of I think that, it, you know, the truth is it would be better if, if priests were allowed to be gay, if people were allowed, not even just gay people get married, but if priests could get married in certain churches. I mean, I think the whole sort of, the religious element of, of kind of ignoring some, someone's sexuality or, or the idea that you're married just to God um, is limiting. Um, and I think it attracts a certain type of person, you know? They used to love priests to be married like 1100. I know, I know. And I think it, you know. But they've got the rights to the land. Right. Right, We're right. not going to end on okay. question. <laughs> okay. Do you have a question? I do, I do. Okay, I'm so glad. I know that your last book dealt with your... Um, your life as a, an adopted child. Yes, exactly. The truth behind that. Now, yes. Know, you know, as your life as an adopted child, how does that Except progression? Right. Not the motivation of your work, but like, oh. you know, like her children or, or you know, right. damaged individuals or. <laughs> Keep going. No. Um, well, I am. I'm up for adoption again soon. So if anybody wants somebody with a child and pets, and you know, uh, I have some land I can bring with me. Um, no, I think 
you know, I grew up not only as an adopted child, but I grew up in a house where some a kid had died, which is sort of worse. Um, so there was this enormous sense of grief that no one would talk about, and I was like the replacement kid, which is probably, the truth is when people go like, why do you write from a male point of view? That kid was a boy who was about 10 years older than me. And I think that that, that ghost had a big impact on my kind of identity. So there's that piece of it. Um, and I think the thing is, is sort of, I grew up perpetually as an outsider, in part from being adopted, in part from you know carrying this ghost around. I was like, you know, for Halloween I would dress up as like Willie Loman. I mean, you know, it was just not. It's true. You remember that skinhead wig with the yellow kind of scalp thing and the ring of hair? I had that in like my dad's briefcase, like trick or treat. You know, it's like who is that? That's Amy Holmes. You know, um, just, that's what, I mean. It's just whatever. So I mean, I think it it had being adopted. Certainly, I think in some ways is incredibly freeing because the truth was before my biological family stalked me and <laughs> informed me of who I really was, um, I could invent any identity for myself and I think that that's part of what also allows me to really inhabit all kinds of people. It's like some weird zelig thing where I'm really very happy to be anybody um, and I like that and at the same time now, you know, I finally have gotten to a point in my life where I feel I've gotten enough kind of professional success and I have this family and so now I finally am a real person and I feel like I have a right to exist but the truth is for like 45 years it was really iffy. Like I was a person who bought like one roll of toilet paper because I might not need more. Um, I wouldn't buy like a theater ticket, I'm not sure I'm going to be here. Um, which is really, it's honestly kind of stressful to live that way, you know. Now I'm okay, I buy tickets in advance, if I'm not here, you can go. You know? <laughs> I go to Target, I, I have so much toilet paper, it's scary, actually. I'm, I'm like the exact opposite. I'll never run out of anything. Um, anyway, on that note, thank you. Thank you for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.